Right, welcome back to episode. Have we reached the the glories of episode eight? I think this is episode eight now um, of the Broken Oars podcast, and we have for your delectation an interview, an interview that is coming over as weirdly prescient and immensely well timed and very relevant to the news cycle. And we planned this, didn't we, Aaron? Yet again, Broken Horse Podcast has come back with the podcast that you need for this weekend and the next fortnight at the most timely point when we could possibly have released it, when athlete welfare in British sports is at the top of everybody's agenda and is on everyone's lips. Yeah, we're lying, actually. We had no idea. It's just like we, we decided to talk to an interesting person that we knew on Twitter and who is that interesting person? And can we pronounce this correctly? I'm willing to have a stab at it, and and then he can have a stab at me if I get it wrong. Tristan McLothing. I'm going for McLothing. Who is a coach, an educator, and a researcher into the dark and murky world of athlete welfare. Talking about athlete welfare this week is very important. It's very timely for what's going on in the news, particularly with British gymnastics, particularly with British cycling. We're not going to do a big, we told you so on this, but I think it's also incredibly important. It's incredibly important to look into these things with Tristan because Tristan's actually researching this. He's doing a PhD in it and he's actually going to be expert in athlete welfare. If you need an expert opinion, people are going to be going to Tristan. And I think he's going to be a very, very important voice in British Olympic sport and probably British professional sport for many years to come. And I think speaking to him um, really kind of gives us a bit of a rapid insight into the way that sport and coaching and the relationship between coaches and athletes will develop over the next few years. I think that's a, I think Lewin is being, as Lewin tends to be, he's being very circumspect and professional about this. I am from the North and I have no such compunctions. I will just say, we we told you so. Let's be quite frankly honest. There is, unfortunately, and we've touched upon it parenthetically and we've touched upon it by inference and we've touched upon it just by quite simply touching upon it. There is something rotten in the state of British athletics at the moment. Unfortunately, the stories surrounding British gymnastics keep on coming. The unfolding slow motion car crash that is British cycling is horrible to watch. And the questions that we ask Tristan and the answers that he gives are incredibly insightful as to how the relationship between coaches and athletes develop, how cultures can either promote toxicity or positivity, how like tends to hire like in coaching cultures, which is why you can end up with a toxic culture or a positive one. And he offers practical and pragmatic insights into how we can rectify this ongoing car crash that we're living through so that we end up with successful athletes, successful sports and successful programs of athlete welfare where we are concentrating on the whole human who wins medals rather than just something that wins medals. And that's a very important distinction. We're talking about human beings rather than medal winning machines. Can I just add a piece of housekeeping before we go? You're editing, damn thing. 
this is just an observation. When you have a croissant, if you eat about half of it and then you hold it in the air and you take a, a jump to the left and then a step to the right and you have a spaniel, you can make your spaniel do the time walk. It's amazing. I suggest that you all try it. Uh, how we ex-rowers <laughs> tormenting innocent dogs. If, honestly. Finley will never forgive us. I don't think I can add a lot to that. Um, I think the, you know, th this has been a bit of a, a sort of a buzzword for us on Broken Oars and I think I'm probably just going to let Tristan do the talking. Mm. Can I ask one thing? It, it, it's something that's just been going through my head for the past few minutes. You, you mentioned that it's like currently whatever best practice there is, there's no real reward for implementing the best practice in terms of athlete welfare. Um, certainly within kind of... At, at British, elite level, yeah. At elite level within British Olympic sport. However, wouldn't... I think you mentioned it. Isn't the idea that, you know, a happy athlete, a motivated athlete, an uninjured and a well athlete is going to be the highest performing athlete? So that's linked with um, like values-based coaching. So we value the, the person and try and enthuse them to have positive experience. The problem uh, with that, and I'm supporting writing something on this at the moment, is not everyone has the same values. And so when we write about values, it's really important that we don't go down the route of utopia and everyone's having a great time because we all believe that it's important to be happy and positive and what is my positive might be 10 levels lower than your positive. So for you, it's not positive at all. And I think we fall down into that trap where we perceive everyone to have the same view on things. And that also takes out the bit that I really look at, which is the toxic people and the toxic environments where people also choose to be a bully and they are aware of their behavior, but they choose to go down the route. They choose to be abusive and for whatever reason, they're not stopped or, um, and so I think you're right to identify that that's what we should do. And like, success isn't linear so there will be some parts where athletes have to be resilient and come back from some some sort of knockdown but we're now getting to the stage where there's an argument about there's a fine line between tough coaching and abusive coaching well the people that perpetrate that line are the people that are abusing because they're the ones that want to remain on the right side of it so they want to think of themselves as not abusive but what they are doing is abusive. It's the same thing with the grey area of marginal gains. We go up to the line, we never go beyond it. Well, if you push the line the whole way, well, of course you stay on the right side of the line, but it's not a line. It's a choice a long time ago that you're going to act in a certain way. And if we put our feelings and thoughts that um, everyone values other people with respect and values them as a person and values their health my reality from what i've what i've studied that's not true 
and if we if we open ourselves up to thinking that that's a possibility then we then we can start to understand how people don't believe that fast crews are made up of happy people part of the motivation for that question i think has come about again from some of the reports and and they're almost daily now there will be another gymnast coming out and basically saying i was forced to go back and train more on swollen limbs basically and told about you know tolerance for pain it's part of the sport i mean half, half the time we're talking about doing this to kids. Anybody under the age of 18 told that to me. That's like, right, okay, I'm, I've got to write this up. Child welfare disclosure, this is... But is but is what you just said there is doing to kids, is that what coaching is? Is it stuff that we do to kids or is it stuff we do with kids? So I think there's two, there's two things. Um, the, the first thing is like when you, when, uh, and there's a safety element to coaching as well. So actually we, we can't just say get in the boat and not teach them how to get out of the boat if they yeah. fall in, for example, but very much at the beginning it's instruction. And so when I was doing my undergrad, uh, a lecturer challenged me that as a rowing coach, I'm not a coach, I'm an instructor. And I was furious. I went away for, and thought about it for four days and had to really think about what it is that makes you a coach, not an instructor. What you said about it's done to athletes, it was, was just a comment that I picked up on, but that is the essence of an abusive culture, is it's done to the people, not with the people. And you have to include people in what you're doing because essentially they are the performers. And so it's, it, there is leadership from the coach and there is, it is a position of power and trust. And so you empower athletes, although some would argue that you don't empower them, but you take all their power because athletes have them all and then you feed it back to them a bit and you say, look, here you go, you can decide this. Um, but even that is controlling because you're letting them decide on something that you've set the markers off. So there's a, there's an element of instruction in coaching if it's a technical sport like rowing where you, you, you have to learn the, the fundamentals. But also as a coach, then if I've read you correctly, you should be facilitating people to be their best selves in the field that they've chosen to pursue. Yes. You shouldn't be dictating what they do, when they do, how they do. And I think it's something we, we, we chatted about on Twitter, but when I read the, the piece on Niall Wilson and when I listened to the interview that, that when he talked about the way that he'd been treated by his coaches about feeling like a piece of meat, um, feeling that he was scared to speak out, that his, his prospects of going to the Olympics were, were dangled in front of him as a, as, a, as a threat. These struck me as the strategies that a domestic abuser would use to control an, an individual using fear of recrimination, making people scared to speak out, directing people into what they could and they couldn't do, removing their sense of, of agency and their ownership of their own bodies and their own personalities, becoming subordinated to, to what somebody else expected them to do. And the dynamic of reward and punish, if you do this, you will get you will go to the Olympics, but if you don't, then you won't. It really struck me that, that this isn't abuse as tough coaching someone being, you know, a bit tougher that you've got to finish your 2K test or you're not getting in the boat. This is someone actually just abusing another human being because they, they essentially have power over what happens in their lives. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think if we relate it to rowing, 
if you look at the decisions that our elite athletes are able to make, so they, if you make the team, you have to train at Caversham, unless you do some training at Longridge, which is prescribed to you by the coach. You are coached by the coach that you are given. You're co- rowing a boat with people that you're told to row in a boat with. You train when you're told to, and you go on training camp when and where is scheduled. For there to be an argument that our athletes, it's then their responsibility to be responsible for their own welfare is a bit of a cop-out when you don't allow them to be responsible for any other aspect of their life. So I think the welfare issue with our elite athletes, and, and it's not it's not abusive until, until the athletes say it is, but it could be a lot better in terms of an environment in which athletes thrive to achieve success rather than survive. And then we're left with the tales of those that did survive. And, oh, you know, they won gold. It was fantastic. Okay, awesome. That person is as valuable as your gold medalist. They might not be as valuable because they don't produce, give you your funding, etc., for the next cycle. But as a person, they are as valuable. So if we ask them, what was their experience? And that's the dichotomy that we're in because we are, especially at an elite level in Team GB, we are driven by the amount of medals that we bring back. So we're not actually asking for the the stories of the other athletes. And there were there was a comment on our Twitter feed about, um, you know, you make it to the fight, you know, the ones who don't get broken make it to the final boat. If the system doesn't break them, then it's proof the system works as we get the toughest and the most driven and the most resilient. That's that's not the case. We're not we're not we're, we may be successful in terms of medals, but we're not successful in a holistic sense. You're right. And in terms of coaching, so we're funded to get success, but also to be at that top table as a coach, you're asked you're asked two questions in an interview to get a better job. You'll be asked. Um, uh, what are your results, um, which will be linked to when you handed in your CV, etc. But it'll be, you know, what have you won, essentially? What have you won? It won't be, you know, tell me how you improved that boat from being 30th best to 27th, because no one notices that. It's what have you won? And also uh, with who, whom, sorry, or where have you coached? Because we hold capital in certain places ahead of others. So if you row somewhere that's good, it's, you know, then you must be good because you row there. Whereas if you're really good and row somewhere that's not very good, you can't be good because they're not good. And and we're, we're really bad at boxing these things. What you were saying there is like, is, is this really, really interesting thing that there is no such thing by our current definitions of a great coach who has not actually worked with great athletes. Well, it depends on, on the value that you give your athletes dependent upon versus yourself. Some coaches believe that it's all down to them. Others would believe that it's all down to the Sorry, athletes. What? Um. <laughs> Others would believe it's all down to the athletes, and then there's a, everyone will fit, I guess, on that on that scale at some somewhere. But until we're asked questions about what things we put in place to develop people and get the best out of them, regardless of results, the hierarchy of coaching is actually what you need is one, maybe two, outstanding athletes and you just go with them. And part of it might be that you don't slow them down, but that is your opportunity to get a better job. And like you said, it doesn't tell the whole story. It doesn't tell you what else is going on. It doesn't give you fundamental ideas about how it happened or or things that you got wrong. It's just that person's going quick and that's their coach, therefore they must be good. And you think, right. well, actually, 
that athlete's outstanding. So maybe it's nothing to do with the coach. Yeah, I mean, is there is there kind of any objective way of measuring coaching ability that, I mean, not only that people who employ coaches should be using, but people who um, want to work with coaches? Well, I think it depends on what you want. So I think um, some people will go to a club because they want success and they hear about successful clubs, so they go there and then they find it really difficult and they're, they might be more focused on well-being or they're more focused on their well-being and, and welfare and they have less success and they don't like the fact they don't have success. So I think when you identify a club, the characteristics that make up that club need to be the ones you stick to when things are going difficult. So if you chose that club because you know you will win if you're in the top boat, doesn't mean it's going to be easy to get in a top boat it might not be very enjoyable at times and you're sacrificing a certain aspect of your priority being your well-being ahead of the success that you get so you have to remember that when you chose that club and that coach and I think that again it's a bit like the culture evolves we're humans we evolve all the time as well that decision that you made in the summer it's now you know March and that decision to chase success might not be deemed the right one. And so when you choose a club, you should probably write down the reasons at that time that you chose that club and you chose that coach because you're writing it. And when you look back on what you've written, you might think, oh, I don't agree with that at all. Well, that's because you've evolved since you wrote that. But if you write it down, it means that you can hold, your, you can realise what you were thinking when you made that decision. But that's that's giving that's giving an athlete agency, which you've noted. And if I've got this wrong, then please tell me. But they don't really have that agency at at the elite level because if you want to row for Great Britain, you're going to you have to uh, you end up at Caversham. You'll be given a coach. You'll be told what to do, when to do it, how to do it when you're going on training camp, what boat you're in, how would an, an athlete in that system, it's not abusive in the, in the way that British gymnastics seems to be coming out as having a culture of fear, but it's still very controlling. How would an athlete in that system take responsibility for their welfare when? Well, I think that there are certain things in that system that they can't control. And so like the things that I described before, about when, where, how much, etc., can't be controlled. But we're not talking about uh, anything other than the best, the best. You know, the coaches are the, are the best. The, the environment is, is you're surrounded by winners. And so it's not terrible. They do S&C Ambition, which is an incredible place. So, so first of all, it's, it's a picture of they don't have much control, but what they don't have control over is is aimed at being the best possible for them to succeed. But in terms of their welfare, they I think it's really important, even within a crew or a group of athletes, that they are an individual and that the coaches and the management team get to know that individual that is stood or sat in front of them and then they will learn how to engage them. Um, also, my master's dissertation was on Olympic athletes that had retired after Rio from the GB rowing team and 
caring about them as people doesn't stop once they get off the plane back from wherever they went to the Olympics. And so part of what needs to be in place as well is a system that provides opportunity for a career that is inevitable once they retire. It's not like the rest of society where we are not limited by physical or age in our 30s. We, we, will, we might delay that for another 30 years. So we then have to put in place things that help them. Now, those things are in place, but they could be, I have heard they're better than when I did my dissertation. But that, th- things like that, if you create an environment where they can perform at their best, but they are also made to feel as people and they're made to feel that we will support you once you are no longer valuable to us as a commodity then they won't be seen as a commodity. They will be seen as a valued person mm. who you are, who, who rowing is supporting and not because you won. It's because that's the system that's in place. Currently in, in British Olympic sport, do we actually have a, a win at all costs um, culture and mentality? I'm, again, I'm sure that there are sports that would argue that they put well-being and welfare ahead of everything else. But again, it, if you're, if some people might even suggest that they've got a win at all costs because that protects the future of the sport they love. If you're funded for success and you love rowing, you need to get success to continue the sport that you love getting funding in the next cycle. So some of it might be that it's done because of the love of something and not done in a negative way. <laughs> the, the situation that we are now in with the athletes speaking out, it would seem that largely you are rewarded for success. And there, there, the Anne-Marie Phelps study, the review of British cycling in 2017, there's a paper come out that, uh, re, um, from Federson in 2020, if anyone's got access to journals, where they talk about if you're successful, you have less oversight. So if you win, fewer people ask you why or how you won. They yeah. just hold you up as you won this is fantastic we have we have key figures in sport holding up british cycling as the you know this is the you need to copy what they're doing listen to this pd he's going to come in and tell you how to run your sport to be successful there have been two reviews in the welfare athletes from that organization in five years i think so yeah unfortunately i think that we are a win at all costs and that's got to change. Which comes back to one of the earlier points that we that we made about we're sold, you know, on a, a three-year, eight, 18 month, three-year rolling cycle, we get the latest buzzwords and it's sold on the back of success. But sometimes when you look at it, and I know that Lewin has very strong opinions about British cycling, success is an excuse for the way that it's achieved, but it doesn't actually hold up once you start to scrutinise it. Well, I wonder as well in 2020, it depends on what you call what success is. If success is just winning medals, then that's probably successful for those that won medals. Even some of those that won medals would have found it horrendous. But if we call that success, I I wonder if Tokyo hasn't been cancelled. There would have been a bit of a storm after Athlete A came out on Netflix and there's there's other documentaries um, mm. on, on welfare of athletes and the Nassar case. Um, but if Tokyo hadn't been cancelled, I think the Paralympics would have started this week 
the Olympics would have started a couple of finished a couple of weeks ago. The gymnasts, some of the gymnasts that are talking would have been at the Olympics. So I don't think that they would have been talking. The review into British athletics came out whilst the Olympics was about to start. So there might have been a bit of focus on that, but then the Olympics is on. And I wonder if we are in a position where this is happening because it has been happening anyway, but we are in a position where there isn't Olympics or a world championships or a European championships to switch our focus onto the next thing. And as sports viewers, the next thing is quite a good distraction from what is happening. And we haven't been afforded that distraction. And therefore athletes have got a space in which they're talking. And we're not just talking about, you know, disgruntled, bitter athletes, blah, 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 which they're called. We're talking about Olympic medalists who were going forward to try and compete at this Olympics saying this this experience that I've had is intolerable and it may impact my my ability to get to Tokyo next year and people are having to listen to them because they're being given a platform that wouldn't exist if Tokyo 2020 was happening is yeah. my belief so I think that's a I think that's a brilliant point to make I think that, that, that actually we've got the time and space for these stories to be heard because there's been no sport being played but essentially, we still have sports journalists who, are, who haven't been furloughed and they've got to, you know, that's really the only reason we're hearing about this. Yeah. I'd also say that without journalism, and I'm sure that there are journalists and papers that people aren't fond of, and, but without sports journalists at the moment, we wouldn't know what we know, which is yeah. a damning indictment of how sport at the elite level is run and and the lack of leadership and the lack of accountability that's taken place and it shouldn't be that a reporter has to be contacted by a survivor of abuse to tell their story that that that, that shouldn't be the, it should be that the ngbs and the governing bodies of sport in this country think well this is the right thing to do regardless of whether the press are going to come and, and identify this as an issue but we but They've, but they've demonstrated that they're incapable of doing that. We're talking yeah. about stuff that is now decades old, and you can, you know, high-profile figures are talking about how dreadful it is and how shocked they are. But they're not shocked. What they're shocked about is that it's come out, and it's come out with the ferocity that it has. And at the moment, the eye is on gymnastics, and it will soon move to another sport and another sport, and. I don't hope that it doesn't turn to rowing because I believe that if people have experienced these things, they should speak out. I do hope it's not to the level because you wouldn't like to think that you're involved in a sport that, that has these issues. But without journalism and whistleblowers, we wouldn't be anywhere near where we are. So what, what are those that are in power actually doing? But, okay, here's the question. I mean, let, let's try and sort of, like, look for a positive alternative. What would the alternative look like of a, a national squad or a national governing body that is saying athlete welfare is at the same priority level or a greater priority level than winning at least one gold medal at the next Olympics? Uh, okay, so one example I would give of, of a 
for future is we should allocate a percentage of funding that's based on athlete feedback in these programs. That feedback is done independently and the funding stream, the one thing that would need to be ironed out in that is that you're then, it's not the athlete's, future athlete's fault that, that the well-being of the previous athletes wasn't looked at. So they would then, the knock-on effect might be that a reduction in funding means a reduction in funded athletes. So then you would ring fence, no, 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 this amount of money is for the athletes. They're not going to be caught out twice. So first of all, they get caught out because you can't look after them properly and appropriately. And then secondly, when that happens and your funding gets cut, they get the money gets taken out of their pocket. You ring fence that money for the athletes and you hold people in management and their coaches to an account of a standard of behaviour that everyone agrees to. And it's, it, if money is going to continue to be the driving factor behind how people behave, then that's fine. Let's continue on that route. But there is now a repercussion instead of hailed as a genius because you won and no one looks at the carnage because it's on to the next thing. Does that answer your question? Though, do those standards not exist already? I think, again, you have to take into account that as humans we're imperfect and, and people quite like a grey area. What I would say about standards of abuse is we are very strong on a standard perhaps when it's somebody that we don't know, it's just a name and a behaviour and we can say that's unacceptable and that needs to be kicked out. The bit that gets really bad is when you start including people's friends and family and it's proven that that this behaviour is unacceptable and naturally humans are not very good at dealing with the thought of I'm friends with somebody who abused underage athletes, for example. So you go, well, no, but I, I know them. So that might be a bit of who they are, or I don't think it's true. But overall, they're quite good people, so we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. And that benefit of the doubt, you don't give that benefit of the doubt to a name on a paper. It might be the same thing. So I think that there's a human factor in that those standards are there, and they're better than they were. We still have athletes are able to have, sorry, coaches are able to have sexual relationships with 16 and 17 year olds in this country um the minimum requirement to coach is a dbs and then i guess if you want to get paid you might need a level one or two until we start making it more difficult for the worst of our society to become members of our coaching society we can't be surprised when athletes are taking advantage of and we can't be surprised when people that we know do it and we try and give them benefit of the doubt which comes back to uh, um if you if you are an abusive and a controlling or a manipulative person and one of the characteristics of these people is is they tend not to think that they are abusive or controlling or manipulative but if you if you are that way inclined and coaching offers a, a in the way in the way that they perceive it a position of power to control other people and especially when those behaviors might be linked to psychological issues like 
narcissism or that kind of thing where these aren't really seen as people just just things to move around to get to where they want to be next whether that's an olympic gold medal or a, a regional championships or or a sexual relationship with a 16 year old child essentially that is going to be an attractive proposition if we don't have say a safeguarding net to stop people coming into these positions of power yeah and and, and that loophole with the 16 17 year olds exists because the government decided on a U-turn and thought that coaches don't have an influence of power. So we don't, coaches don't hold a position of power relative to um, teachers, for example. So um, I believe that's going to change, but until coaches are treated as a more of a profession, but also coaches within the profession are more professional it's still going to be seen as, you know, it, it's not teaching, therefore anything goes. And mm. and professional doesn't mean paid in this context. It just means a professional set of standards. Yeah. That, a set that of we them. that we can't even agree on. There are some people that believe that we should be able to have relationships with our athletes. And and we, we So there are basic fundamental flaws in coaching that we're not addressing or can't agree on that are not going to change in the foreseeable future. And until they are, athletes are, continue, are going to continue to be um, like, there are going to continue to be people drawn to coaching for the worst of reasons and not for the reasons that we believe and we would think that coaches are drawn to. The problem is, is that in terms of coaching research, we take a lot of our work from um, business, counselling, nursing, other areas of medicine, teaching, uh, lecturing. Now, they're quite clear in their rules um, that you can't, and there are repercussions for if you do, the argument I get back is that, you know, well, we're two adults who consent and we're in love. My reply to that would be, well, just don't coach them. I'm not, I'm not saying spit up. I'm not suggesting that um, you, you aren't in a loving relationship that's consensual. I'm suggesting that you're undermining the job that I've done since I was 18. And, right. and all of the work that we get from elsewhere, they're very clear prison guard no you know counselor no and so why is why is coaching different and again i think coaching is different because it's made to you know it's like a vocation rather than a profession but it doesn't benefit the athletes in the long run that coaches believe that this can be part of their remit i think um looking in on it as a parent i find that idea that it's okay as being attractive to people with a more predatory bent. Um, I guess, especially when it's happening in the 15, 16, 17 year old kind of categories, perhaps attract people who have those behavioral bents anyway. Do you remember the footballer, Tony Adams, who had the, the issues, uh, played for Arsenal, had the issues with mm -hmm. alcoholism, wrote his first book a while ago. He's just brought another one out. Um, very interesting, very he did his coaching badges in Britain and he, he did a number of, of, he did the courses he was supposed to and he had a number of roles here. He went across to Holland to become um, a coach and he was amazed at how in football, 
in Holland. Even the kids under nine coach has a, has a professional, clearly defined set of standards and acceptable behaviors. They have a clearly defined role within it, within a, a greater system. Coaches are treated as professionals. It's not just someone who can do the job on a Saturday morning because they've got a bit of time off. There are clear pathways from, from your coaching courses into the profession, what you need to do to move to the next level. Athlete and player welfare is is completely, it's a nailed on thing. And I think it was you who tweeted the Dennis Bergkamp. The quote from Bergkamp is the only team that needs to win is the first team. He, he said, you know, we think in this, we think quite parochially in Britain, we invented football, we gave the game to the modern world, we know how to do it, we invented cricket, we invented, you know, we, we, we gave birth to these things, we, we know what we're doing. And he said, actually, by comparison with his experience in, in Holland, we don't have the clear structures that, that he found on the continent. And we still see, we still see coaches, um, in, in, we link good coaches or good coaching to success and bad and like poor coaching to, you know, underachievers, et cetera. And that, I don't know another profession where we're so clear in terms of our binary choice of you win, you're good, you don't win, you're bad. And I think that that just seems to be mad, that, mm. but that's where we are. And, and I would again fall back on if you've won, every, everything of note on my CV as a coach, every single one of those results has had good athletes involved. And there are many results not on there that had good athletes they they are the most important thing if you take them out there is no olympics there is no world championships at henley we'll just be standing around drinking pims and the stewards there's not you know for some people that might be what they want to do when they do anyway but without athletes at the center of everything we do there isn't anything so why don't we treat them with more respect and treat them well and then provide them with coaching that is going to do more than just teach them how to move a boat fast or kick a ball in the right way or coaching is way more than that, I think. To take Aaron's point about coaching in, in Holland and to also, you know, look at the professionalism of coaching. One of the, the things that I took away from, and I, you know, particularly in a school environment, the... I never, I had no idea until I did the level two course for rowing was that the minute you agree to supervise some kind of sports session, you are legally considered to be the coach. And at that moment, you have a degree of responsibility. If you have this rigid professionalism and I mean, even, even that kind of knowledge of the responsibilities of coach, I think would deter maybe half the people who now pop down to a sports club on a Saturday morning because they've got a bit of time to help out, to kind of like get the kids lined up and say, right, we're going to do this. This is our drill. And then we're going to have a little bit of a game. Isn't there a danger that, as we were talking about the volunteer culture in rowing, we are going to lose people who are currently, I don't know if you'd call them backbone of the sport, but they're certainly like a pretty important floating rib. 
so I think that you're right. I also think, therefore, we need to look at the responsibility and expectation we put on coaches that if we don't wish to lose the people that want to do it once a week or they might be involved because their kid's involved and that's how they got in, I think that we should harness those people and cherish them because without them, as you say, most of the sport would fall down. But then why are we putting it on them that they are in charge and responsible for things way beyond their experience or or qualification? So we then need to put in place protections for these people so that means that they can enjoy just coming down and helping out, not being made to feel that they need to do a certain thing to be valued in terms of qualification. But we then don't say that essentially you're our expectation of your qualification experiences down here, but we're going to hold you to an account up here. Off you go. And yeah. they come back and their crew fell in and right. Well, now you've got all these things to fill. Like actually we probably need to marry those things up. That if we have a volunteer tar, uh, workforce and by work, I mean a volunteer one and then, then, we need to support them with the fact that they are volunteers. So that's how I started coaching as a paid coach with a group of volunteers. Things came up, but without them, it wouldn't work. So they were in charge, essentially. I moved, maneuvered them, but with that, if one of them went, it all fell down. Yeah. Um, so it's not about me not valuing volunteers. It's me saying that perhaps we are putting too much on our volunteers if we're saying that you just need to, not not really anything just come in and be called a coach does that make sense we're expecting yeah. this and we're we're holding to them to up here whereas actually we just need to have a set of behaviors and expectations that's more realistic with how much they're involved and that and there's like basic expectations so it's basically marrying up the volunteers that we have with the with the look this is this is what's now expected so, that, so you, I think you can run two things. That there's a minimum line of expectation of behaviour and then you marry up how much people are engaged. It's the same with paid coaches. You have zero hours coaches that, are know, that know what they need to know for the coach, the crew they're coaching, but they probably don't know all the goings on in the boat club. And then you have full-time paid coaches who probably do know everything that's going on in the boat club because that is their full-time job. So we all work to a set standard of expectation and behaviour, but then you marry up how much invested they are or how much they do with what we then expect from them. What we'd like to try to do, and we discussed this earlier before we start recording, is I'd like to throw um, kind of a few kind of devil's advocates points at you. I, I, I wouldn't want any of people like, judge me by these questions because they don't really represent a very considered part of me, but they do kind of represent like the first kind of like indignant foot stamping mm -hmm. reaction to it so we've been talking about the balance between the the win at all costs idea and athlete welfare can essentially publicly funded athletes lottery funded athletes expected to be funded to train and to play unless they're actually training and competing with the goal of olympic medals I mean, that, that's what the whole system was set up for. You can't just expect to have four or eight years of, 
quite a nice life doing throwing or badminton unless you're actually doing what it takes to win. I don't know that the people that uh, win gold medals are happy unless they've won them. And so I think that the system draws people that are that want to succeed. You, you can succeed without abusing athletes. And unfortunately, there's people saying that, you know, our system works. I don't mean in rowing, I mean in some other sports now. But there's no evidence to show that it works. It's just that the one that made it, made it. So I think that there are, that the athletes that are being funded are in the top 0.1% of our population, incredibly driven. So I don't know that they want to just potter around and be paid a bit of money and have a jolly life. But equally, tough coaching and being driven and pushing athletes to be their best has got nothing to do with being abusive. They're, they're two completely different points. So it's a question of the standards and and knowing how and, and making sure that the line that someone else has drawn is and you're not crossing that regardless of yeah and it's a pattern of behavior as well so abusive coaches will show the pattern of behavior over and over again you then have yeah. coaches who might just do one thing so i i wrote a, my analogy with abusive coaching would be a bit like the british weather so if the weather is sunny all the time we would probably not appreciate it because the grass is looking a bit bare and you know we got burnt and it was too hot so and and that's a bit like we if you don't push athletes and support them in their quest to be the best then you're going to let them down so they're not going to appreciate just paddling around and having a jolly time if it's the summer is majority sunny as you expect but there are some rainy days you would reflect and go actually the summer was quite good there were some bits that were a bit tough and it wasn't great and that's a bit like elite it's not linear it's not enjoyable all the time there are tough parts but they will reflect on that and go that's fine if the summer was rain every day thunderstorms lightning you couldn't do anything you couldn't go anywhere it was horrendous and at the end of it maybe there was a you know, a sunny day, you wouldn't reflect on that and think that was a fantastic summer. Yeah. You'd go, that was dreadful. And we're all in agreement that was dreadful, right? Yeah, that was yeah. dreadful. And that is abusive. That is an abusive culture. That's abusive coaching. There are coaches that every now and then might, you know, the athletes need to be told, but a pattern of behavior will demonstrate what you see. Abusive behaviours have a very distinct pattern or, or, or abusive individuals have very distinct patterns of behaviour and one of the characteristics of them is the strategies they use and the, the behaviours they display tend to recur in a cyclical fashion. That repetition of behaviours is very different from somebody who is occasionally tough when they need to be to push their, their athletes on. When, when you're in the middle of, of an abusive relationship, it's pissing down all the time. And when you do occasionally get the, the odd nice sunny day, it's a blessed relief, but you know that the rain is coming by the end of the day or by the next morning. If you, if it's 90% sunny and you have some thunderstorms along the way and you have some ups and downs before you get to the end of the summer, to use your analogy, yeah, it's probably been a, a good summer. It's not been a, an abusive summer though. 
so yeah, those the, those spotting those patterns in individuals in coaching roles, I think, is is probably a key indicator of which side of the line they're falling on. And then if you if you then include that culture is is ever evolving, you then hire in performance settings. You then hire coaches who have either been through that system and survived it, or you hire coaches who need a favour. So you've you've over promoted them so they owe you or you hire people who have a similar ideology than you and so if you again if you if you think that culture is is every day is gradually you know it's like water against rock you can't see it erode it but over time it erodes it you get rid of the people that complain you get rid of the coach that you think will be a problem and then you get so far down the system where you then put in place guards of that system that weed out coaches who might be a problem before they get anywhere near being in the system. Mm. So it's a failing. And this is where whistleblowers are so important because they like without Steve Magnus, there would be no Oregon project and Cara Goucher and her husband. There would be no, there wouldn't be any Salazar story and Mm. we wouldn't know about it because they told the truth about what was happening. And so uh, over a period of longer time, you would create situations in which those people aren't aware they're being manipulated and that they're part of a toxic environment or they become aware and you quickly move to get rid of them before you have brought them in too much. Yeah. That's, how you, that's how you get away with it. And, and it's all predicated on success these things only work if you continue to be successful because people will continue to fund you and continue to in, in, um, give you power and give you less oversight and so the problem emerges when you have toxic environments and abusive cultures without the success because then people start asking what's going on but it's not a good reflection on our safeguarding system of checks and balances that we are relying on whistleblowers to show us where we are falling down, especially when you see the level of opprobrium that people like Cara and her husband got, and the the, the even the backlash against the, sorry the British gymnasts who are speaking out, it's already started, and I guess that's because there are so many vested interests in them in them not speaking out. You're relying yeah. on people being incredibly brave, and if you're in an abusive relationship, it's incredibly hard to speak out. It, it really is, because the first thing that happens is nobody believes you, as as we're seeing on, on Twitter with some of these stories, that there's this kind of a backlash. There's a positive supportive side, but there's also a side that's already pushing back even before we've investigated well, it's a bit fully. Like you, you touched on, on your last uh, recorded um episode about Jürgen and narrative and and if you succeed you control the narrative and if you control the narrative people then believe they know who you are because they see you giving interviews and they see you talking in the paper you don't actually know who they are at all and then when someone speaks out against um you know someone in another sport like cycling oh well no that's the really successful coach that gives interviews and talks about you know, washing their hands and, and you know, setting beds up for them. And you know, that guy's a good guy. He's doing the best for his athletes. Because, because hundreds of thousands of people read that, read that, whilst the one person who's having a dreadful time and has spoken out about it 
is quickly pushed out the back door. Yeah. So as we as we spoke on, we message each other on Twitter. Narrative controlling the narrative is massively important. It's very hard to do without success. It's also very hard to do without whistleblowers and reporters, journalists. They, the whistleblowers and journalists are the two people that that are providing us with the information that we have about our high-performance sports. And at what point do our high-performance sports that are in trouble turn around and say, by the way, you aren't aware of this, but this is what's been going on and we're going to tackle it. They don't. So how can they then suggest that they're interested in athlete welfare? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Athlete welfare is and should be the responsibility of the athlete. It is as influenced by events outside of the training environment as it is by those inside of it. And the athlete is the person who knows their own mind and body best because it's theirs and they know it best than the coach and they should be ready to speak up and communicate about when they are not well, when they are not physically intact and when they are unhappy. I, I put uh, that to you as a statement. So I would say, as I suggested earlier, if you don't allow athletes the freedom of choice around where they train, who they train with, who coaches them, when they train, when they go on training camp, how can you expect them to then be responsible for their own well-being in a culture that they are part of, but they are, they are large, large elements of which are controlled, even down to we'll provide you with food because we can provide you with really good food. Now, I'm not suggesting that all of those things are negative, but I think that it's slightly ridiculous to suggest that they can be responsible for that element, but they can't be responsible for every other element that might have an impact on their well-being at the, at the high-performance setting that they're in. The other thing I'd say, and I'm mega key, like, for me, athletes are the most important thing. That falls down slightly as a rule, in terms of believing them when it comes to their own safety. So there needs to be a level of understanding that if you say it's up to athletes to choose when they can train, if they're injured, that's not responsible because if it's a couple of weeks out from the Olympics, I imagine those athletes will try everything they can to get there. It's very much a bit like we've seen with rugby with the HIA concussion. If you ask a player if they're okay, they're going to say they're okay because they're in the moment and they're not thinking about 20 years and ahead of time. And so you have professionals who make these decisions for them. So I think it's fair to say that athletes have a certain level of autonomy over their well-being, but we have to create an environment in which if they aren't allowed an opinion on large areas of their life in rowing, they are allowed to have a say in their welfare, but with but with trained professionals who then also, you know, are they injured? Are they mentally well? You know, that's why again, TB rowing hire the best people because they take it very seriously. Oh. The next qu- question that I, I've written down here: It seems to me that British Olympic sport is where I understood British football or you know, it wasn't the Premier League, but it was it was first division football 
to be before Jimmy Hill revolutionized the whole process and got the money going to the players and not the clubs. It seems as though the people who have the long-term careers in British Olympic sport are the coaches, the administrators, the people who are in the national governing bodies and the people who are in the international bodies. Should it be the other way around? Should the money be finding its way to the athletes and then the athletes deciding what they do, who they spend that money on? Should, should coaches be going to athletes saying, please, can I coach you? Please, will you employ me to coach you? Rather than athletes going to international coaches and saying, please, will you coach me? I think I would suggest that the system of of having coaches select athletes and coaching the athletes and them choosing that ahead of the athletes is the right system because I think, again, you can't presume that all athletes are going to agree on who they have. And also, athletes' primary goal is to win. So if every other nation is focused on winning and half of our athletes are arguing over where they allocate the money they've been given, that's probably not going to be conducive to their performance, which is primarily why they're there. The problem with coaches being put on athletes is again where if you create a power structure you don't hire the best coaches you hire the coaches who are most um complicit or going to go along with the status quo or what they believe to be the status quo of the culture so the hierarchy and you know like i explained before they'll either they're owed a favour or they've been over-promoted or, or et cetera, et cetera. And so that slightly falls down. So I don't think athletes should choose, get given the money and choose, but you hope that NGBs are choosing the coaches that do the best job and they actually look into the, what those are and ask the right questions rather than, you know, what have you won? Where have you worked? In you come. What are the right questions? Well, I think that you should be challenging people on their what they think about athletes' role, what your role as a coach is, what your philosophy is. You need to provide evidence of these things, whether you know them or not. What's your um, coaching ideology in terms of how do you how do you interact with the athletes that you work with? Um, how what are your gaps in your knowledge? What are you good at? What's the be- what's the thing that you would say? I'm really good at this, but I'm not great at that. I think they're more pertinent questions than oh you won a thing that's yeah that's cool or you didn't you don't have the experience of this so we're not going to give you the experience okay that's fine but without getting given the experience you're not going to ever get the experience so the next question and and we're starting to get into touchy territory here and and i recognize that we're getting into touchy territory so i am asking these questions pretty much for you to have the opportunity to answer them put them away if we look at gymnastics in the uk without looking at any specific athlete it's coming for a lot of accusations recently a lot of these have mentioned the athlete a film they have mentioned what was 
a film about the due process court case of a prolific sexual predator and they've tried to tag their own grievances on this in what is a trial by media situation which is completely without due process has this been handled in the right way should this should the athletes have done this through the proper channels uh so this is sunday the 30th of august apologies because that's like broken the myth that it's like you know we're live <laughs> um, yeah yeah no no, um, no no but last friday amy tinkler who's an olympic gymnast from she's a medalist from rio she retired after abusive uh, behaviors and and it was kind of covered up that she retired for that reason um she mentioned that just last friday she had a complaint from december 2019 and it was told that it was dealt with and closed and the matter's over and that was on friday so we believe we're led to believe that you know why didn't these athletes speak out sooner well we know that athletes who are, who are on the end of abuse some don't know about it at the time some might be so traumatized it takes decades some just don't talk about it at all so that's a ridiculous that we can't talk about you know you should have spoken out at the time because not everyone deals with it the same way um i'd also say that athlete a has identified actually identified a problem with if you speak out the athlete that athlete a who it was about Uh, Maggie Nichols was the second best gymnast in America behind Simone Biles. She spoke out against Larry Nassar and didn't go to the Olympics. So actually the lesson from that is don't speak out and you might be all right, but if you do speak out, you absolutely won't. So So I think a lot of athletes have seen that the right thing is to speak out knowing that if you do speak out, that there's there's no guarantee that it will work out well for you. Yeah. And also, the the trial by media. Once those people speak out, if you Google their name, I imagine that the stories they're currently telling will be attached to their name for the rest of their lives, and they are sharing some of the most horrendous experiences they might have have had ever and they've got to live with that and i don't just mean now while we're in the eye of the storm i mean when they have kids they might have to explain to their kids if you google my name or grandkids and i think that they should be saluted but they've clearly tried to go down the path of telling the right people whose job it was either those people are in a position where they couldn't do anything about it because we all have a boss so if your boss says this is how we do things and i guess you either then whistleblow as well or you go along with it um so sorry that's a long answer but i i think no, i think I, I i believe the athletes have probably gone down the right route and nothing has changed and now they're going down the media route and the media are there and reporting it and the the vitriol these people are on the receiving end of is I can't imagine how brave they've had to be to speak up and then to be shunned by people who don't believe them or don't want to believe them as your first reaction. I think that's dreadful. And they should, again, they should be saluted for what they've said. Not my, my God, you know, people, people stay, you know, you can't just believe 
such and such. But there are people in the Nassar thing who were telling their parents when they were young children what he had done to them and they weren't mm-hmm. believed. And yeah. There's a podcast called Believed, which I would urge anyone to listen to. It's pretty harrowing. Um, but I think if we start on the basis of belief and a bit of proof is required if we can get it, the trial by media of these coaches, it, you know, we had a GB coach from gymnastics come out last week and say that they they refuted all allegations made by one person. And within a couple of hours, two more people came forward about the same coach and now she's been suspended. It's very easy to say, I didn't do it. It's very, he said, she said, but we don't have that. We have an tens of hundreds of people going this is my experience people have to listen basically and so actually now is the time to listen to these people because if the olympics happens next year it'll all well but the the thing's going to move on isn't it so yeah almost it's it's rather than trial by media it is actually the media doing its supposed constitutional duty of holding the powerful to account well i can't imagine that they just take someone's word for it that's what I'd say as well. I think that the, I imagine that they've got a fair amount of sources and a fair amount of someone like ITV who keep on reporting about journalism, uh, sorry, keep on reporting about gymnastics. I imagine they've done their background to make sure that what they're reporting is legally from a, from a, a legit standpoint. And to do that, they will have to have gone through a lot of vetting. But yeah. so for them, for those stories to come out and people just say, oh, it's not true. Well, if it's not true, they'll lose a lot of money when they're sued. I mean, what you said is 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 very true, but it's very harrowing because what you're essentially saying is that abused athletes face the same challenges in speaking out and being heard that abused people in other sectors of society also face, whether it's domestic abuse or, or, or whatever else, which is you're too scared to speak out because this person has, has power and control over you. If you if you go through the channels you are advised to go through, it tends to get closed down, which has been the experience of some of the gymnasts here. If you speak out publicly, you attract so much vitriol, and you're you're kind of the first person through the door on the issue, whether um, that will be attached to your name forevermore. That's that's pretty that's pretty shocking that we're in the you know we're not in the 1950s or in the 1970s we're in we're in the 21st century that we still don't have an, a forum where we can deal with these things, and the natural pushback from the safeguarding institutions that are supposed to deal with them is to try and close them down because we're being successful. That it must take a lot of courage to speak out. Mm. I mean, no, I mean to to seriously kind of put that that point, you would actually have to make the equivalent point well it's if your husband's beating you up why don't you just leave i mean it, it, it's we know that that's not a realistic statement to make it doesn't work like that from a purely logical standpoint it's a viable question to make but we know that that's not how life is the thing about abuse and control is though if someone walks up to you on the street and kicks you in the balls you know how to react to it you call the police and you make sure you never see that person again. Usually by the time you get to that stage in, a, in an abusive relationship, whether it's as an athlete and coach or whether it's in a domestic setting, you've had so much agency removed from you that, and you're so isolated. It's really hard to speak out. I, I can't believe that we're, we're in the third decade of the 21st century 
And in this modern civilized country, we're, we're still having trouble dealing with the realities of these dynamics. It's quite shocking. What I found interesting is how many people get in touch with me and comment on they appreciate what I'm saying or doing or researching or speaking out against. And actually, it's not difficult. It's the right thing to do. And I value this as highly as nearly anything else in my life. The problem emerges is when people really feel passionate about it, but they don't want to talk about it because they're worried that they might lose something. And I can't lose more than... So my more, my, the most important thing in my life is no less important to me than the most important thing in your life. So we can lose the same, the same thing by speaking out against something. So I struggle with the sort of secret messages of support a bit where actually if enough of us say this isn't right, it will stop because those people will be found out and they won't be encouraged or allowed anymore. The problem is, is that they're not, they're not. And so the this, this cycle continues. And, yeah. and like you say, some people don't realise because they're part of the, the coercive and, and controlling cycle. But, you know, I've, I've spoken out twice about two different things. It's cost me an awful lot, but it hasn't cost me anything personally in terms of my family. It's just cost me the views of some people that don't agree with me. Well, that's fine. I, I did the right thing. I told the truth. Um, so I think we just need more people who, and I don't mean the, the survivors of abuse, I mean just people that see it going on, calling it out and, and or supporting, if you see a statement that you support, support it. Don't, don't kind of think that you're helping by supporting under, under a radar as if everyone's watching. We need people to say, it's not acceptable to abuse athletes and be okay on standing on that firm ground without being worried that somebody that you respect or you're friends with, it turns out they abuse athletes. If they abuse, then they probably weren't the person you thought they were. Don't worry about it. It's got no reflection on you. It's got no, it's just, but you, that's a, that's quite a basic ground to be stood on, but people still seem to struggle with that because they don't want to upset the status quo, but then the status quo is that uh, it, we're in 2020 and people are still coming out every day about their abusive experiences as athletes. And for, this first is, of all, I'd, I'd just like to say thank you very much for these answers. Basically incredibly valuable because we are talking about enormously serious issues. Um, and I, I do realize I'm, I'm actually sort of deliberately putting across challenging points of view, but also points of view that I think a lot of people will just kind of jump to as like, oh yeah, we're, you know, well, what about this? I is, think that it's really important because you, you asking these questions, like I say, about where we stand on our position makes you wonder about your position, but equally a conversation is not you formulate an argument whilst they talk. You have to listen to what the other side of the argument might be. And I don't, I don't suggest that that's your position, but I believe it's the position you are taking for the for the conversation to evolve. There's not much to talk about if we all sit around and say it's not right to abuse athletes. That 
that's quite a short <laughs> podcast. So I appreciate what you're doing because it makes me think about where I stand on things, but equally it might resonate with some people who believe this and and it might make them think about why they believe in it. It doesn't mean it will change their mind and nor should it. If they believe in it, then then so I think I think it's clear what you're doing and I think it's good. It does seem that I think there is a difference between male and female athletes, but you can pick me up on this, but there seems to be a real failure to be able to discuss in a sensible, objective and sensitive way issues of weight, BMI, body composition, power to weight ratio, nutrition and diet with female athletes. So I think that there's two things on that. I think that there's health. So talking about nutrition and diet is more related with health or, but as we talked about with volunteer coaches and the expectation, you have to be aware of what you know and you don't know before you have these conversations. Just because you're a rowing coach or a sports coach doesn't mean that you have any idea of one, what is good nutrition or good BMI, etc. And two, how to then have that conversation with the person that's in front of you. So you better have a pretty good relationship with those athletes if you're going to bring those things up. Um, I would also say that it's the responsibility of the coach to evaluate the importance of these things as a last, you know, the health thing is different, but if it's to make the boat go faster, is that the limiting factor? Is your athlete being a certain amount of weight overweight a limiting factor? The difference in gold medal time between the Cox and Cox's four for men was 10 seconds. I mean, you can't really take, you know, who knows, maybe the fastest time ever, etc. But it was about 10 seconds. A Cox weighs 50 odd kilograms. So having a conversation with an athlete about how much weight they might need to lose. And is that a limiting factor? Does that, is that a conversation that needs to take place? And the people that are talking about abuse, a lot of women are talking about weight, but I think that they talk about it as an example along with others of, of a controlling narrative of, I was told what I could and couldn't eat particularly with the gymnasts that are speaking out. And, you know, someone like a cox like Zoe, she has a minimum weight that she she has to be. So that's her that's her weight. That's the she can't be lighter than that and she probably shouldn't be heavier than that. So it's not really anything you need to talk about. I mean I don't know anything about that sort of level of BMI, etc. I'm not that sort of scientist, but I found recently I was at a junior international thing and people were talking about what's per kilogram for their athletes, which means that athletes for their ergo, how much wattage they pull versus how much kilograms they are and the number. And, you know, you're looking for a magic number, what's per kilogram. And I'd never heard of this before. And it certainly wasn't used in the high performance environments I was ever in. And I'm not sure it needs to be used in... I, I, 
if you're talking about watts per kilogram and the kid is not getting their blade in the water, stop talking about watts per kilogram and oh. coach them how to row better. Yeah. And, 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 you know, also maybe reflect before you start picking on what the, the athlete and more like the child, but the athlete could do. How about the coaches reflect on what they could do better and, and go through that long list of things that we could do better as coaches before you then start going, okay, this is absolutely our limiting factor. That could save you 0.2 of a second over 2K, but if I teach them how to finish the stroke, that will teach them, that will give them three lengths. Yeah. But, but that one's hard, so I'll just put it on the athlete. Right, so the next question is, from in nearly all of the recent complaints, disclosures, let's, let's say nearly all of the disclosures about um, incompetent and abusive coaching from, if we look at gymnastics, from cycling, um, they've come in the majority from female athletes. If male athletes have been saying these things, would they have got as much attention? Or would it have just been told, man up? <laughs> so as somebody who watched their wife give birth to our son last week, the term man up I find incredible because I couldn't do what she did. Right. No way. She's done it twice now. No, no way. So with gas and air, no thanks. So um, the, the, that's an interesting question. There have been some males, but predominantly it's been women. But I think that the reason it's been women is because um, you have a certain expectation or we have a certain expectation of men. So I wonder if men are less inclined to speak out because of um, like this masculine hegemony. He I always get this word wrong. Apologies. Hegemony. Hege yes. He hegemony. Yes. What, um, no, what he said. He, there, he, we, we all we all had a go at it. Hegem hegemony. Masculine hegemony. Yeah. Masculine hegemony. So there's of of how men are and they act, and and we're talking about elite athletes. So there's even more expectation that and we we attribute war and battle to these people. So they're going into battle and fight, and it's like no, no, they're just putting a blade, a carbon fiber blade in the water and pushing them pulling there's no war you can't even touch your opposition so let's but but we put these things up on a on a thing about you know that men are expected to behave that way but i think that that takes away from the overall problem is power and power has to have control over people and i would imagine on some level it's easier to control young women as in in gymnastics young women than it is to control an 18 or 19 year old man but control comes over time and so you you have to have people in the system that you can manipulate and control over time and coerce them into doing acting in a certain way so i don't think it's a gender issue i think it's a power issue which is linked with the fact that men of a certain age and build have exerted their power over 
people that are smaller physique wise so yeah so that's what i would say is my understanding without knowing too much about the gender issue i would suggest it's down to a power power and and they perceive that they can control women greater than they can men and then women feel because of athlete a and other women have spoken out i wonder if more men will now speak out because of nile there's a societal perception that men can't be abused some of that if you go on a legislative level if you look at um, the domestic abuse legislation that we have in this country where women and children are are positioned as victims and men are, are, are positioned as perpetrators society isn't reflecting the legislation Legi the legislation is reflecting the societal perception and if you are also brought up with these ideas of masculinity being a man being means being able to deal with things, being able to endure things, being able to fix things. I would imagine you're probably right. After after Niall's comments, there may be more male athletes or more men coming forward in society to talk about their experiences. But to this point, there's probably been an internal bar on them speaking out because it's not, it's not, why would you admit it if you're a man? Why would you, why would you want to admit that you can't do what society expects men to be able to do, which is fix things, deal with things, endure things, it'd be tough, be a warrior. So I think, I think there's a lot of interesting complexes at play with what you've said there. I, I think that chimes um, with the societal perceptions too. I'd, I would suggest that sport is a sort of extreme microcosm of society. So if there's a prevailing thing that happens in society, it probably is uh, replicated in sport, but just on a smaller level. Hmm. I'm I'm basically pretty much going to leave it at that. Um, I think well, we've taken a huge amount of your time <laughs> and you have been Thank massively kind of, you know, detailed in your answers and infor extremely informative in your answers, which has been exceptionally helpful for thinking about all these issues. Yeah. Uh, one thing I would like to ask you is just like a last finishing question. So like, what is rowing doing right now that is working what, what in in terms of like the sport of rowing from your point of view from your experience where's it getting things right um that's, a, that's an interesting question because if you spoke to my wife off the back of the research that i'd spend my life doing she says that i look for the worst and everything um so I will try and answer that. I, I think rowing, what rowing does well is it, we have incredible people that, that every weekend when the COVID's not around give up their free time and create this community to enable athletes of all levels most weekends to race and perform and it's done in a very old kind of you race in your time. So you don't actually have any sort of extrinsic understanding of how well you've done. Um, and it's a bit of a sport that is the pursuit of being the best you can be during the head season anyway. And then you get immediate feedback when you go to a regatta. But I think rowing is full of incredible people. And I've been, involved in it all my life and you go to events and 
it's the same people who are on the cake stall at such and such regatta and that will provide, you know, maybe a hundred pounds for their boat club, but that hundred pounds might be a couple of pairs of shoes that will make a massive difference in one of the boats. And, and I think that there are not enough inclusive things happening, but that seems to be increasing. It used to just be London youth rowing, but now you have Warrington, Leeds, um, Eton have a, um, Hannah Vines runs something at Eton with their local school borough, state school kids, um, Fulham Reach. You know, we have all of these things trying to incentivize inclusivity into what I believe when you meet people is an inclusive sport. I, I, there aren't many people where you go where you're not welcomed and you're not treated well and people will fall over themselves to help you in rowing. If you need to get somewhere or get a boat somewhere or something's broken or people will just help you. And I don't know if that's like every other sport because I've not been involved in every other sport, but I do find the people in rowing incredibly generous with their time and their, and their resource, which might be limited, but that doesn't seem to matter because we're all in this sort of, mad rowing world which if you're outside looking in you think it's it's weird and takes up too much time and is dull but if you're inside you absolutely love it and you get what you're trying to do is essentially be the best version of yourself you can and part of that is you row but part of it is actually you commit time and effort into another group of people trying to do the same thing and I, I think that, you know, there's not much money in rowing, even with our top level. There's not much rowing. You know, most of the clubs that you see winning handy are volunteers. Well, all, nearly all of them. And the sacrifice that goes in, and you just think whether your aim is to win Henley or win Peterborough Summer or any other event in between. Drink! Um, you, it's just, it is an incredible sport with incredible people. There are phenomenal coaches involved. There are things that we could do better that we've addressed, but I appreciate the people that are drawn to rowing. So, ladies and gentlemen, that was one of the one of the more intense chats we've had on Broken Horse Podcast. And I, I think that, you know, th- this is something that Tristan did acknowledge when he was talking to us, that he, he's a rowing coach but he spends his life or half his life kind of researching all the terrible things that can go wrong when coaching goes wrong. Um, both at sort of like the small scale and the large scale of it. And it's, it's not really what he thinks of sport. It's just what he, he, he researches on sport. He, he, he's a much more cheery and, and happy chap than, uh, than that interview might suggest. And we, we should probably have him, on again to talk about fun stuff like you know rowing in summer you know when the, the sky is blue and the leaves are green and and the, the water has trout swimming through it stuff like that yeah and to be fair he did make the analogy and it was a it was a brilliantly articulated analogy that the difference between an abusive culture and a, and a, a positive culture is like a rowing summer 
if it pisses down all the time and it's miserable and it's hellish and there's one or two sunny days, that's a that's a pretty bad summer. That's a pretty abusive and toxic setup. If, on the other hand, it's sunny all the time and there's one or two dark days where you've got to kind of muscle through it, that's probably a fairly positive environment. Um, yeah. It was a very intense chat. And I think it was intense because even though we recorded this at the back end of August, these stories have been rumbling on in Team GB for about a decade in various forms in various sports, and they seem to be coming to a head. Tristan makes the very important point that if the Tokyo Olympics hadn't been cancelled, none of these stories would have come out because the, the, the impulse in the news cycle is to always look for the next thing and the next big event. And I, I really hope that this acts as a reset button on our cultures in British sport at the top level and all the way down. Because the simple reality is this, abuse has no place in our society at any level, whether on a domestic level, in a work environment, and it should certainly not be happening to anybody who is participating or getting involved in sport. And it really is as simple as that. And when you hear about the stories of athletes who go to their own regulatory bodies and are shut down by them, there is something seriously wrong and rotten in the state of Denmark when that is happening. And we need to address it individually and collectively as a nation and as a collection of sporting cultures who work under the Team GB umbrella. Yes, sport with integrity, a subject we will be returning to. Um, Indeed. Many times in the future. Bowside holding, stroke side out. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. Good night.